0: Listen, if you are worried about committing the unpardonable sin, you don't need to be. You don't need to be because Christ's words about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit were never intended to trouble genuine Christians. Never. That was never his intent. See, the New Testament makes it very clear that those who trust Christ for salvation are completely forgiven. All of their sins. The moment you trusted Christ... As the one who died in your place on the cross, the Bible says that you were completely forgiven. That is, all of your past sins, all of the present sins that you may be engaged in, and all of your future sins. You are judicially forgiven of all sin, regardless of the nature of that sin. That's why I read just before uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, in which Paul says that, that all of our sins were forgiven because they were all nailed to the cross when Jesus died. Ephesians 1.7 says essentially the same thing. We're forgiven. 1 John 2.12 says we are forgiven of our sins. And that's why the Apostle Paul stressed in Romans chapter 8 that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus.
1: Welcome to the Verse by Verse radio broadcast with our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today we're beginning another series which will be taken from Matthew chapter 12. The phrase, words have meaning, has been said by some fairly famous people. Pastor Steve will say it, although there is one other famous person who said words have meaning, and that is the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. I'm not sure Justice Scalia was thinking of Matthew chapter 12 when he said that phrase, but I know Pastor Steve was. Whenever we begin a new verse-by-verse series, I always have an anticipation for what will be coming. I know everything Pastor Steve will be teaching us will be biblically based, and if we pay attention, it will have an impact on our spiritual lives. One of the topics that will come up in this program today is demon possession and how Jesus dealt with it. So, let's turn to Matthew chapter 12 as we begin today's verse-by-verse broadcast.
0: Let's open our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 12 as we continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And we have come to a very interesting and fascinating portion of Scripture. I want to read to you beginning at verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they'll be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he'll plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven whoever speaks a word against the son of man it shall be forgiven him but whoever speaks against the holy spirit it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come now this passage of scripture contains some of the most terrifying words ever spoken by jesus and the specific words that i'm referring to i think you already know are those found in verses 31 and 32 in which jesus said that the sin of blasphemy or blaspheming, which means to speak against the Holy Spirit, he said it will never be forgiven. Never be forgiven. He said whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. In other words, in other words, anyone guilty of this particular sin will never experience ever God's forgiveness, either in this lifetime or for all of eternity. Now, those are terrifying words. They really are. And as James Boyce has written in his commentary on Matthew, they are intended to be terrifying words. The Lord said it with that in mind. However, sometimes these words have frightened people who don't need to be frightened by them. There are some very sincere and dedicated Christians who have unnecessarily anguished over these words at a fear that they may have committed this unforgivable sin, this sin of blaspheming God's Spirit, and therefore they are concerned that they can never be forgiven. Now those Christians who think like this, think that they have committed this unpardonable sin, usually feel this way because of some past sin in their lives, some sin that they've repented of, but they still are quite ashamed of. And they're not quite sure if that sin fits the category of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so they live in a constant state of spiritual anxiety, not really sure if they are forgiven or not. They're, they lack assurance of their salvation. They are fearful that they may have done something so wicked in the past, perhaps immorality or become drunk or maybe dabbled in the occult or vented their anger and bitterness towards God. Some feel that maybe they have attributed something to Satan, which really was of God, or some perhaps have committed some criminal act. Whatever it is, they are afraid that they have sinned away God's grace and God will never forgive them. And they're just, They're just not sure. They just waver. Listen, if you are worried about committing the unpardonable sin, you don't need to be. You don't need to be because Christ's words about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit were never intended to trouble genuine Christians. Never. That was never his intent. See, the New Testament makes it very clear that those who trust Christ for salvation are completely forgiven all of their sins. The moment you trusted Christ as the one who died in your place on the cross, the Bible says that you were completely forgiven. That is all of your past sins, all of the present sins that you may be engaged in, and all of your future sins. You are judicially forgiven of all sin regardless of the nature of that sin. That's why I read just before uh, Colossians chapter two, verse thirteen, in which Paul says that that all of our sins were forgiven because they were all nailed to the cross when Jesus died. Ephesians one seven says essentially the same thing. We're forgiven. First John two twelve says we are forgiven of our sins, and that's why the Apostle Paul stressed in Romans chapter eight that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We need never fear ever being condemned for any. Sin, Because Christ has paid for all. You see, the issue here is the sufficiency of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. If we believe that his work on the cross was sufficient, then we need never fear that there's a sin that will not be forgiven. So if you're a believer in Christ and have agonized over feeling that you may have committed a sin that's so terrible that it cannot be forgiven, then take heart. Because I assure you with great certainty and dogmatism that you have never committed the unforgivable sin. And why do I say it with such certainty? Once again, we turn to Dr. James Boyce, who offers these great words of assurance and comfort. He wrote, Most ministers have had people come uh, to them wondering if they have committed the unforgivable sin which, uh, when they have done nothing of the sort. He writes, In fact, the fear that they might have sinned unforgivably is the best possible proof that they have not. In other words, what he's saying is those who have this fear that they've committed the unpardonable sin in heaven because the very fact that they are concerned about God's forgiveness reveals that their hearts are tender towards Christ, that they are responsive towards the Savior. But those who have committed the unforgivable sin don't care. They really don't care. Their hearts are not tender towards God. They are constantly rebellious towards him defiant towards him they never think about whether they have been forgiven they don't care about whether they've been forgiven or not so our lord's words were never intended to trouble christians then the question is why did he say it why did he say these words what purpose could there be in saying such terrifying words twofold purpose Note this, twofold purpose in speaking about this sin that will not be forgiven. First of all, Jesus wanted those Jewish religious leaders who had rejected him, in spite of seeing so much evidence that he was Israel's king and messiah, he wanted them to understand that they were irreversibly lost. They had made their final decision. They were lost and they would be lost forever because they had made a permanent, final, irreversible decision about him and evidenced the finality of that decision by concluding that he was satanic. That was their verdict. After all the evidence was in, they said, he's of Satan. Jesus said, you're lost forever. You're lost forever. But secondly, there's another reason that Jesus spoke about this sin that will not be forgiven. In addition, in addition to wanting those religious leaders to understand about the permanency of their lost spiritual estate, the Lord also wanted the words about the unpardonable sin to serve as a strong warning to those who had also witnessed his kingly power, but as yet were undecided about him, they had not made a decision. They had not they had not concluded whether he was the Messiah or not. And he is urging them to repent and believe on him before it's too late, before they become like the Pharisees, before they conclude like the stiffened, hardened Pharisees that he was satanic. And if they did that, they would be lost forever, irreversibly lost without any hope of ever being forgiven. And the Lord simply wanted them to understand what was at stake and to give them serious consideration to believing on Him. You see, it's to people like that, who know a great deal about Christ but are still undecided about him that this passage of scripture is extremely relevant this is not something that's related simply to the first century it is modern and contemporary in its principles you see there are scores of ind- individuals today who are very familiar with Jesus Christ because they know a great deal about him from exposure to the bible they've sat in churches like ours they've sat in our church they've uh, listened to sermons They've read about Christ. They've heard the truth about him. They know that he claimed to be God. They know that he fulfills all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. They know that he performed miracles. They know the uh, many of the truths that he taught. They know that he died by crucifixion and that he rose from the dead. Yet with all their knowledge, they still have never trusted him as Lord and Savior. And for years, the Holy Spirit has been witnessing to their hearts, convicting them. As well as convincing them of their need to repent and believe in Jesus. Yet they continue to reject him. They continue to refuse to repent. Because why, as Jesus said in John chapter 3, they love their sin. They want to remain in darkness. They hate the light. They don't come to the light and he is the light. Lest their deeds would be exposed. The issue is not him. It's their sin. And it's to this type of person one who has been enlightened by the Holy Spirit to the point where they cannot deny the validity of the truth about Christ, yet they continue to reject him, that person, Jesus says, is in great danger of reaching a point in their life where they could make a final and permanent conclusion to never trust Christ, and then they would be lost forever. To people like that, this passage is most relevant. This is the kind of person who has been exposed to Christ. Understand that. They are enlightened by the Holy Spirit. They need nothing more to convince them of who Jesus is. But they have never been converted. These words should be frightening. They should be terrified by his words about not being forgiven because we're talking about forever. Jesus said, in this lifetime and forever, in the life to come, meaning it's permanent. No opportunity to ever change that. Now, having said all this, we need to understand that the passage before us in Matthew chapter 12 is not simply about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not simply about being unforgiven, the unpardonable sin. That's just one truth, one aspect of the larger theme of this passage. And what is the theme? Well, in order to understand that, we need to step back and see where we are in the broader context of Matthew chapter 12. Now, as you'll recall from our past studies in Matthew 11 and 12, the major thrust of these two chapters is to tell us about the growing negativity that was developing in Israel towards Jesus. In spite of all the supernatural works he had done, the many healings, the casting out of, of demons, most of the people, most of the citizens still did not believe in him, and their belief was fast developing into opposition. Understand that. First, Matthew tells us this by opening the chapter and revealing a very unusual incident in which John the Baptist, great man that he was, slipped into some doubt concerning whether Jesus was Messiah or not. Now, this was not unbelief and it was not hostile opposition. Nevertheless, it was still a negative reaction. And so and so Matthew includes it here. Then Matthew took it to the next level. By presenting that the general public's attitude towards Christ was just foolish criticism. They said he's a drunkard. They said he's gluttonous. There's nothing Jesus said or did pleased the people. They, they just had a bent against him. And that's what they said. They were like, Jesus said, you're like children, foolish children in the marketplace who never are satisfied. If someone plays one game, they want to play another game. If someone plays this game, they want to play that game. There's nothing That anyone can do to please them. They are totally dissatisfied. And that was the general feeling of the people towards Christ. No matter what he did, it was not the right thing in their eyes. Next, Matthew reveals that the residents of three cities in Galilee, who had had the most exposure to Christ's miracles, were simply indifferent towards them, apathetic. They, they really didn't care, and thus they did not repent. Now, as Matthew moves into chapter 12, he reveals that this rising opposition towards Jesus on the part of the, the common people had now grown into a full-scale rejection of him by the Jewish religious leaders, specifically the Pharisees, who were so hostile towards him that in chapter 12, verse 14, they make a conclusion that this rabbi from Galilee has to die. He has to die. They have to come up with some way to eliminate him. And so Matthew reveals that what began with a a negative doubt on the part of John has now developed into a full-blown rejection of Jesus as Israel's promised King and Messiah. And this rejection was so deep, folks, and it was so filled with animosity and hatred that not only did the Pharisees deny that Jesus was from God and the true Messiah and want him dead, but they are openly now and publicly accusing him of being satanic. It it doesn't get any lower than that. It is a vile, blasphemous accusation against him. And they did this by charging him with doing his work of exorcism, casting out of demons, by the power of the devil. The power of the devil. They said that Christ's power to cast out demons came not from God. They didn't deny that he did these miracles, but they said he's not from God. God is not the source of this remarkable power that he has. This supernatural power comes from Satan. He is an evil agent of the devils. So understand that the focus of the passage before us is this wicked accusation by the Pharisees against Christ, saying that he is satanic. And by the way, Mark in his gospel account tells us that there were certain scribes who came down from Jerusalem and joined the Pharisees in this accusation. But Matthew simply tells us that the Pharisees were there. And in the opening verses of the passage, Matthew tells us the specific event that triggered such a blasphemous and vile accusation. Notice, beginning at verse 22, we read this. Then a demon possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, Matthew tells us that one day a demon possessed man was brought to Jesus. A man who had a demon living on the inside of him and had taken control of him. And as a result of being demon possessed, this man, we're told, had lost the ability to see and to speak. But as Jesus so often did with those who were possessed individuals, he healed this man. That's the language that Matthew uses. What he means by that is that he cast the demon out. He told the demon to leave. He cast him out, and then what happened was this man's speech and sight were restored to him. Now, I want you to notice something very interesting about this miracle. It's not so much what Matthew tells us about the miracle that is significant as much as it is about what he doesn't tell us. That is what's significant. Notice that Matthew gives us very few details about this miracle. It's very unusual. That's very significant because most of the time when the New Testament records a miracle done by Christ, we read about pertinent information given that's related to the miracle, such as where it took place. What was the location? What the healed individual might have said. Did he say anything leading up to this? Did he plead for the Lord to heal him? We also are often told about the spiritual condition of the person who would be healed. Did this individual have faith or or not? Many times we're told if others were involved in the miracle, did friends bring him to Jesus? Did he come on his own? Was he uh, hanging out in a tree? What what, what was it? What what happened around this? Did Jesus, we're often told, uh, questions that are answered like this, did Jesus perform this miracle by speaking a word or by laying his hand on the person? In other words, we're often given a great deal of information that uh, is related to the miracle. But notice Matthew gives us none of that information. Essentially, just tells us, as he communicates this miracle, that there was a demon-possessed man, blind and mute, brought to Jesus. Jesus Healed him, and now he spoke and saw. That's very brief, and that's very unlike most of the other miracles that we're told about. So why did Matthew do it this way? Well, it's obvious that Matthew purposely downplays the details of this miracle, but why? Watch this. He did this, folks, in order to highlight, not the miracle. But the confrontation with the Pharisees that followed the miracle, that's his focus. The the miracle was simply a springboard into a discussion. His emphasis is on the reaction that the miracle received. What led to this slanderous accusation was the initial reaction of this miracle By the crowd of people who witnessed it. That's what Matthew wants us to see. And he tells us this in verse 23. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David. Can he? Now we're told that the people who saw Christ cast this demon out of the man were amazed. Which means more than they were simply surprised. The thought is they were astonished. They were astounded by this miracle. In fact, one Greek language scholar suggests that the thought that comes closest to conveying the original meaning of this word amazes is that they were knocked out of their senses. You know how we'd put it today? We'd say they were blown away. They are just blown away. They were so amazed. And that, that is the gist of this. And as a result of being blown away with amazement, they raised a very important question. They said, this man, meaning Jesus, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? In other words, this man cannot be the Messiah, David's promised descendant, can he? Now, you wouldn't necessarily pick this up in the original text, but the way this question comes out and is worded in the original Greek text suggests that the people were skeptical concerning Jesus being the Messiah. Although they thought it was possible that he could be the Messiah, they really expected a negative answer to this question. That is very clear from the Greek text. So the gist of their thinking would, would be something like this. We can see with our own eyes that Jesus has done this miracle. But he can't possibly be the Messiah, can he? He's so different than what we expected the Messiah to be like. Yet he did this miracle like the Messiah would do. Can this man possibly the son of David?
1: Whenever you have read Matthew chapter 12, were you amazed by the fact that Jesus cast the demon out of the man? I have to say I haven't been amazed. I was thinking about that though as Pastor Steve wrapped up our verse by verse program today. I think one reason I haven't been amazed is that I don't think I've ever seen a demon possessed person. Another factor is that the people there more than likely would have known the man who was demon-possessed, so the immediate change would have been amazing. I think it is interesting, too, that Matthew's goal was to highlight what the Pharisees said about this healing. They slandered the Creator of the universe. We're going to continue with this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees in our next verse-by-verse program, so please make sure you can join us then. Also, don't forget about the Verse by Verse podcast. It's available at versebyverseradio.org. That's versebyverseradio.org.